0: Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. My name's Pete, and i uh, really glad that you're with us today. And um, it was great to hear <clears throat> the Mexico report from the youth group. I actually had a chance to go on that same trip uh, almost a year ago. To learn uh, about peacemaking as a practice for followers of Jesus, as well as uh, God's heart for the immigrant, which is clear all throughout scripture. And I'll share with you, just for me, one really practical takeaway Um, from that trip simply had to do with language and learning how to love our neighbors better through the language that we use. And so oftentimes, uh, we'll hear people refer to undocumented immigrants as illegals. Right? Which isn't just a statement about their citizenship or immigration status, but it kind of smells more like a statement about their humanity. And um, and so I'd never really thought about that. I'd used that term pretty freely before the trip. And um, what I learned on the trip was that to cross the border without proper documentation is illegal. Uh, It's a misdemeanor. I have a misdemeanor, on my record, if you don't know me well, This may be uh, a little concerning. (laughs) When I was 21, I uh, was involved in a drive-by hot dog throwing incident (laughs) in front of the Peacock Tavern in Corvallis, Oregon. And I was awarded a misdemeanor second degree littering. He said he could have hit me with you know, assault um, or things like that with a hot dog. Um, Anyways, I had to go to court, and the the judge was very confused that this happened while I was sober. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I have misdemeanor on my record. I don't know if it still is there, but at no point did I ever get labeled as an illegal (laughs) or as a litterer. (laughs) At no point did the hot dog throwing ever take my identity away from me, or something like that, right? And that's like legally, I realize, yeah, we have the same standing as, as the uh, undocumented <laughs> immigrant. So anyways, for me, that was just a really practical takeaway. I'm not going to call anybody illegal uh, if they're made in the image and likeness of God. Maybe they got here illegally, but that's not who they are. So um, probably shouldn't have told that story about the hot dog and everything, but that's all right. We're going to dive into it. So... If you've got a Bible, let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. And uh, you may have noticed we kind of mixed up the order of service this morning. And we did that in order to create space for us to come to the communion table a little bit later. And so we kind of rearranged some things so that we'll have some extended time to receive communion together. As a community. And so uh, we're going to wrap up the series that we've been in for the couple months. It's called Sacred Roots Historical Practices for Authentic Spirituality. And so Ken and I and others have been um, just going back through the history of uh, Christ's church and learning from those that have gone before us. And uh, we've talked about things like worship and discipleship and prayer and truth and worldview and scripture. And this morning, we're going to talk about communion uh, as we lead in to communion. And so, again, the idea is that Christianity is a received faith. First and foremost, it's received by grace through faith. We don't make ourselves Christians. God saves us and includes us in Christ as part of his family. It's an incredibly um, wonderful story that we get to be part of. And secondly, Christianity is a received faith in the sense that we're not making this up. That we've got centuries of our brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone before us. And uh, we can learn a lot by looking at their life, their practices. It's not always a pretty story. There's some pretty sketchy parts in our our family history. Um, But the comforting thing for me is that this Christianity thing isn't the latest, greatest trend. And uh, it's not the hottest, newest thing that we're trying to jump on board with. But there's a rootedness, a groundedness to our faith in knowing that it goes back many many years and God has been drawing him, drawing people to himself through Christ and we're just the next chapter in that story and so we'll talk about communion this morning as a practice of authentic spirituality Luke chapter 9 one of my favorite stories about Jesus starting in verse 10 when the apostles returned they reported to Jesus what they had done then he took them with him and withdrew and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we're in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go out and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So I want to start by asking the question, why does Jesus do this miracle? Or really, we could ask, why does Jesus do any of his miracles? I think our tendency would be to assume that he does this miracle and others sort of as an act of divine showmanship, That Jesus is simply showing off his God powers in order to attract a crowd. And uh, he's made some pretty outrageous claims about being one with the Father or about being sent from heaven. And so it would make sense that he's going to try to now back up those claims with these acts of showmanship. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Flaunting it because he's got it? That's what all of us would do, right? If we had God powers make sweet stuff disappear or blow up or fly or something like that, but I don't actually think that's what Jesus is doing here. If we peek a couple days ahead in the story, what we see is that um, this is an impressive miracle in the sense that he somehow miraculously, mysteriously violates the laws of nature and multiplies this small meal into a feast for thousands, but there's something deeper going on here. Um, In verse 11, Nope, sorry, wrong place. Oh yeah, Jesus looks up, he sees the crowds, and he welcomes them. And he immediately sees that this is a group of desperate people. So why does Jesus do this miracle? Well, first and foremost, I think the author here in Luke and the other Gospels wants to make sure that we see, why does Jesus feed these people? Because they're hungry. Why does he give them something to eat? Because they need something to eat. He has compassion on them. He loves them. So we'll just start with that observation. Before it's him flaunting his God powers, we see something of his heart. We see something of his character and of his mind and that he sees people in need. And he goes out of his way to love them and to meet their needs. But there's actually something even bigger going on here. And that this miracle actually begins to unfold the story for us and pull back the curtains on who Jesus really is and why he really came. In this story, food is central, bread and fish specifically. And all throughout the Gospels, the writers use pictures and stories about food and the table and meal as a synonym for life. And this, the simple connection is that without food, you die, right? And so food is life, bread is life and you can think about through the story of God the times where God miraculously provides food or specifically bread for his people and in so doing he provides with them with life and so that's what's going on here in John's account of this same story Jesus would come back later with his disciples and say hey let me tell you what was really going on back there on the big hillside banquet he's like yeah they were hungry and so we fed them but here's what I want you to really get. I am the bread of life. I am the food that God has sent into the world. I didn't just come to make bread, I came, Jesus would say, to be bread, to be food, to be life for a starving world. So we start to see in this story and many others. Miracles are most often more accurately titled and understood as signs, signs and wonders, not just acts of showmanship, but pictures of the kingdom, glimpses of what it looks like when heaven touches down on earth and God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. Signs, that's what you see Jesus doing. And so he comes and says, I'm not just here to make bread, I'm here to be bread. How does that work? Well, the picture is here for us in the story. In verse 16, he takes the five loaves, the two fish, he looks up to heaven, he gives thanks, and he breaks them. And then he distributes to his disciples and says, take this food, this bread, this fish, this meal, and go feed the people. So Jesus isn't just giving a cooking lesson here, is he? This is another sign. How is Jesus going to become life for the world? Well, how did that bread become a meal for the crowd? It had to be broken. And if Jesus, as the bread of life, would become life for the world, he also would need to be broken apart. We start to understand but this is where the story's been going the whole time. And so Jesus says in this act and many other places that I, as the bread of life, am here to <coughs> feed a dying, starving world, a desperate world. And the only way that's going to happen is if I break myself open and pour myself out. My body and my blood just like that, the fish and loaves, will be miraculously multiplied so that one man could give life to the whole world. And so God giving himself to us is the foundation of the Christian faith. To be a Christian is to celebrate and live into this story. That God has given himself to us In Christ, Jesus has become our source of life and it came at the cost of his body being broken and his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might be joined to him and live forever. And so the secret to the kingdom is to let Jesus feed you. The way we make it into the kingdom of God is by letting Jesus serve us, by letting him fill us. Now that's pretty different than how lots of us think about what Christianity is, because we often think Christianity must be all the good things that I do for God, the way that I serve him, the way that I love him, the way that I try to bless him or help him, but what this story shows and all throughout the Gospel that the mystery of the kingdom is that Jesus is the bread of life, that he feeds us. And the way in is to let him do that. The truth is, we all have functional food for our souls, don't we? We all have things or people that we look to in order to feed that part of us that longs for meaning and joy and identity and hope. We can turn anything into bread for our souls. And so the picture is Jesus saying, yeah, all of that stuff might work for a while. Success, money, fame, beauty, power, control, comfort, whatever it is. He's saying that'll work for a while. That'll feed you for a minute. But I'm the bread of life that never runs out. I'm the only one that can actually fulfill the deepest longing of your heart. And so, Jesus doesn't do this miracle, flaunting it because he's got it, trying to woo the crowd to himself, but this is him demonstrating to the disciples that his body, just like those barley loaves, would soon be broken so that a starving world could be filled. Okay, let's go on. In verse 16, where we just were, There's a really powerful and important word when it says that Jesus gave thanks. Does anybody know what that word is in the Greek? It's Eucharisteo. Coming from the word good, you, and charis, or grace, gift. So to give thanks is to receive a good gift. To be thankful is to recognize grace that's been given to you. So all throughout the scriptures, God's people are instructed and encouraged to be thankful. Literally, to be Eucharist. To give thanks is to be Eucharist. To receive grace as a good gift to pause and like many families do sit around the table and what do we call it when we say a prayer before a meal we say grace God has graciously faithfully provided another meal for us we look at that we say grace we Eucharist we give thanks and so all throughout the Bible God's people are encouraged to be Eucharist, to be thankful people, to give thanks to God. And I also think that would extend to being thankful for the grace that's been shown to us and the kindness by one another. God's people should be thankful because we get that this is a received faith. But we obviously know that the word Eucharist primarily now refers to the Lord's table. Or communion and throughout the history of the church that's become a synonymous phrase that we come to the communion table and we call that Eucharist a chance to give thanks by receiving grace from God you see what Jesus does there he takes these loaves doesn't look like much these stupid little fish doesn't look like much he looks to heaven and says God has been gracious Gives thanks and he breaks it apart. And so that's the invitation for us to come to this table, remembering that Jesus is the true bread of life, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out, and we come as he invited us to, to do it in remembrance of him, to take this bread, to take this cup, and remember him, to be mindful of who he is and what he's done to save us in his life and death and resurrection and ascension and the giving of his spirit and the, the forming of his church, all that God has done, we look and we remember what it cost Jesus to bring us in to this story in this family. We Eucharist, we express thanks and gratitude, we pause we think, we pray, and we remember. But I'm convinced that for most Christians, or not most, but many Christians, that's where the meaning of communion stops. Now, I don't want to say it shouldn't include all that, but I think that's where it starts. I think there's much, much more going on in this whole thing than we even realize. So it's not just that at the communion table we remember, but it's also that we receive. Marcus Johnson writes this. Following Augustine, the Reformers believed that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. This means that the visible and physical signs of water, bread, and wine refer to and bring us to participate in the reality to which they point, namely, Jesus Christ. And what he's trying to say as a Protestant, I believe Reformed theologian, is that the sacramental nature of the communion table and as well as the act of baptism isn't just what we would refer to as a Catholic thing. He's reminding us that from the time of the Reformation almost 500 years ago, that followers of Jesus have recognized that there's something sacred, something special, something supernatural that happens when we follow Jesus into these places of receiving grace. Okay, so we talked about this a couple months ago with baptism, that we don't earn grace by nature. Grace is that which can't be earned. But simply going to the place where God has promised to give grace to us and receiving it isn't an act of earning, right? If you'll remember, I used the illustration that if I tell you I want to give you $10,000 and all you need to do is drive to my house tonight at 7 and I'll give you $10,000, does driving to my house equal earning that check? It doesn't. You didn't do anything to earn it. You simply went to the place where I told you I wanted to give you a gift. Right? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about sacraments. Not earning grace, but simply responding to those places where God says, I want to meet you here. I want to give myself to you here. And there's lots of them. Lots of ways God funnels His grace, His life, Himself, into us. Right? Scripture would be the top of the list. We go to to the Bible, to hear from God, to receive from God, to experience him. Community and worship and creation, as well as baptism and communion, all these different ways, God says, those are the places where I want to meet you and give myself to you. But tragically, in my mind at least, many Protestants have lost the central significance of this incredible invitation. That Jesus shows up and gives Himself to us in the ordinary, in the mundane, in really regular, everyday stuff, like barley loaves and fish, like a river, like a loaf of bread and a glass of wine. Ever since the Reformers, the Lord's Supper, has been received as partaking, in this phrase, the very real presence of Christ. And I won't even try to explain. Nobody, nobody really knows how that is, is to be thought of or to be understood. It's simply to be received. That somehow, mysteriously, just as those loaves and fishes were multiplied, the presence of Christ is to be found within these elements. And so when we come, it's not simply as a memorial at this table to remember and to think back to what happened 2,000 years ago. We do that, but we also come to receive. When we say communion, it's not a metaphor. It's actually to enjoy the presence of God through the broken body and poured out blood of Christ, which is somehow mysteriously and miraculously Offered to us in something as simple as bread and wine. So at the communion table, we ingest the infinite. We don't take communion, we receive it. We don't bring anything to the table, we are invited as a guest. And we don't come to this table pretending that we have everything together. We come acknowledging that we don't. There's something so beautiful, so sacred about this invitation. And just like in the incarnation, when God becomes human, when the Word becomes flesh, If we believe that, and that's central to our story, then we can also believe that somehow God offers himself to us, the very real life of Jesus, in bread and in wine. And so for me, this is where the sacred and secular divide begins to break down. This is where the Vegas rule stops applying to church. You know what I mean, Vegas rule? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? A lot of Christians do that with church. Right, What happens in church stays in church and I'm going to go do whatever I want the the other six days. We don't mean to do that, but we end up compartmentalizing our faith in Jesus. And to me, this is where Sunday and the other six days begin to blend together because if God's very real presence can dwell within a loaf of bread and a glass of cheap wine, then where else might he be dwelling in my life? Where else might he show up Where else might my eyes be opened to uncover the beauty of the divine, the mystery of the sacred in ordinary life? So for me, this table is where I've learned to belong. Want to hear a poem? Listen to this. Let Christ inform all of life. Don't be a religious cliche. Be a real human being. Belong to the human race. Belong to the woods. Belong to the city. Go for long walks. Learn to appreciate art. Take up the violin. Cultivate culinary skills. Read War and Peace. Laugh more than you do. Weep now and then. Listen to live jazz. Pray. Eat a peach. Do something ridiculous. Go dancing. Stop judging. Start loving. Plant a garden. Climb a mountain. Memorize a long poem. Learn some astronomy. Become a beekeeper. Go back to college. Take up a new hobby. Make some new friends. Read the Bible in a new translation. Get rid of bumper stickers. Learn a foreign language. Watch a foreign film. Change your mind. Only drink good coffee. Trust the sommelier. Talk to your neighbor, not about religion. Go to church. Go to the circus. Don't confuse them. Be human. Belong. The poem is about the death of Gnosticism, or dualism, the sacred-secular divide, and our tendency to think that heaven's up there, earth is down here, and we need to detach ourselves from earth in order to connect ourselves to heaven. When the very story of the gospel turns that all on its head. It says that God in Christ has left heaven and come to earth and he's bringing his kingdom here and now. And he, though, in, though God himself becomes human, the word becomes flesh in Jesus and something as ordinary as a loaf of bread and a glass of wine becomes sacred and an opportunity for us to receive and enjoy and commune with the God who loves us and has saved us and knows us but still wants us one final one final thought soon after Jesus left the earth he uh, entrusted his mission to his church to his disciples and one of the ways that the early church began to understand who they were really early in the story of God was by referring to themselves as the body of Christ. You'll find that language in Paul's writing and in others. That as Christians, as followers of this Jesus, we are now his body. We're not just a body, but we're his body that we are his physical representation in the world. Jesus physically ascends his presence away to heaven, but then offers his spirit to us, pours out his spirit to us. In Acts 2, this whole thing goes down, where the, the church becomes Christ's new body. So now we can take the picture even further, can't we? Because we understand that in order for Jesus to give himself for the good of the world, in order for him to become the food that our souls long for, in order for him to become the, the king in God's new world, it required his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out. And if that was true about his physical human body, then it would also be true about his body, the church. I love in this story, in verse 13, the disciples go, hey, Jesus, all these people are hungry, so you should fix that. And what does he say? You give them something to eat. And we're like, hey, Jesus, really need you to help my friend or my neighbor or... And he turns and says, What? You give him something to eat. You be the answer to that prayer. You show up. And then when he actually takes this loaf and this fish, when he breaks it apart, Jesus could have gone out and worked the crowd. It's like, Hey, yeah, see what I did? Want some bread? Want some fish? But what does he do? He instead takes that meal, he gives it. To his disciples, and he says, You go feed them. So Jesus calls the church to be those who would distribute his life to the world. We don't want to just be users, we want to be dealers. I probably shouldn't use a drug metaphor, but you get it, right? (laughs) He calls us to be dealers of his life, distributors of His grace. And we recognize that if we are going to be the means by which the life of Christ comes into the world, that just like His body was broken, so is ours going to be. That to truly love our neighbor, to care for the poor, to welcome the immigrant, to do justice to the oppressed, to the orphan, to the widow, to show up simply even to be the family of God to one another, it's always going to come at a cost. It's always going to come at the cost of breaking ourselves open and pouring ourselves out. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you, as Antioch is fond of saying, truly have given your lives away for those in your family, for those in this community, for those in our city, for those around the world, you know exactly what it feels like to break yourself open and to pour yourself out. You know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this comes at a cost. And most of us know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of someone else's Eucharist. We have people who we would say, I don't know how I would have gotten through that without you. You were there for me. You listened to me. You prayed with me. You sat with me. You cried with me. You helped me. And we receive that as grace. It's a Eucharist, right? Somebody has broken themselves open, poured themselves out to give us life to float us through a hard time, to suffer with us, to walk with us through it all and we receive it as grace and what we have to remember is that every time we receive grace, it comes because somebody is giving their life away. Somebody is pouring themselves out. And so the church is invited by God to be the body of Christ in the world, to be a Eucharist. And this is a very different understanding than what many would have of the church that would say, our job is to be polished and professional, or our job is to be hip and relevant or something like that. No, our job is to break our lives apart and pour ourselves out for the feeding of the world. That's what Christ calls his church to be and to do. It's a community of people who have committed themselves to being a Eucharist for the world around them. So we would have to ask ourselves on a regular basis what would this look like for us? Who is Jesus calling us to give ourselves to, to invest in, to pray for, to suffer with, to listen, to help, to serve? And if we were truly living this out, we would be a community of people that were constantly pouring ourselves out and therefore constantly needing to be filled back up. Because some of you have been a Eucharist for others, breaking, pouring, serving, loving, to the point where you have nothing left. Many of us know what that feels like. We need a source of life to come in if we are going to be a source of life for the world. Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus said, hey, here's the place where I'm going to give you grace? Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus said, here, really simple, take a loaf of bread, take a glass of wine, and mysteriously, miraculously, and faithfully, I'm going to show up there and I'm going to give myself to you again. And so you spend the other six days out loving, serving, taking care of, giving. And on Sunday, you come and you come with empty hands simply to receive. It would be awesome if Jesus offered that to us. (laughs) I think he has. Now, the Bible doesn't ever make really specific commands about how often the church should celebrate communion or what exactly it needs to look like. And in fact, I think it's beautiful when various expressions of the church figure it out based on their culture and calling. If you've traveled to other places in the world, it's beautiful to see that uh, this isn't a normal-looking meal. Um, And so other cultures and other countries have figured out what's our version of bread and wine. I think Jesus is big enough and beautiful enough for all of that. And so at Antioch, we're figuring out what that rhythm looks like. One of the things we are committed to, though, in this new generation of community groups we're launching uh, in the fall, we're calling them communion groups. And part of it is just this simple invitation that Jesus offers this gift to us, and we want to get together and receive it. So early on in the book of Acts, I think it's pretty clear that the first place after the Last Supper that Jesus' followers take communion is in homes. So that might be kind of a weird idea for you, but uh, I actually think it's a simple, beautiful invitation. As a family, around a table, pass the bread, dip it in the cup, that sort of thing. So uh, we're working on that for the fall and excited to invite you into it. Um, Let me say one last thing here, and that is that if you notice at the beginning of the story we talked about, Jesus has been giving, serving, breaking, pouring, And he's actually been willing to disappoint people. He doesn't uh, do this out of codependency. He doesn't live this way out of a need to be loved or seen a certain way. Um, He knows that he needs to be refilled, replenished, recharged with the love of God. And so what I'm not talking about is a bunch of self-important people going around trying to fix the world because we're the answer. What's fascinating, we use the term Messiah complex to talk about someone like that. Now, of all the people that have a Messiah complex, the Messiah isn't one of them. Willing to disappoint, willing to set boundaries, willing to be self-defined in the calling that he has from God so that he can give himself most fully to the people that God's given to him. And so what I love about this table and this opportunity, Ben, you guys can make your way out, is that what we do here, again, bleeds over into the other six days. That what we do here is an opportunity to receive the very real presence of Jesus. Just the same way we become Christians, by receiving Christ, we do that again. We continue to receive. And so I'm going to invite you to come to the table. We have stations here and in the back. And um, to spend time at the table, to actually commune, or a simple way of putting it is pray. Take a moment to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God. And if that looks like confessing your sins, then do it. If that looks like expressing thanks and gratitude, then do that. If that looks simply like being silent and present with him, then do that. But stay for a moment and pray. If you want to come with your spouse or with a friend or with a brother or sister in Christ and pray together or receive communion together, then that's a great thing to do. Or you can come by yourself as well. But it's practice for the rest of the week. A big, messy, diverse family, diverse as, we're tr- as we can be, learning how to share life together as the family of God. The walls are broken down. Bread broken is the food of peasants, wine is the drink of kings. And it's all here together in one meal. So Ben will lead us in a few songs and I'll invite you to come to the table whenever you're ready. Father, we are so thankful for the life that you've given us in Jesus. And that it wasn't just an act or an event thousands of years ago, but that here today you continue to give yourself to us. And So I pray that you would make us a church that receives, that lets you feed us, that lets you fill our souls, and that in turn, we would be transformed into food for the world. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your family. In Jesus' name.